Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich UNESCO City of Literature. It's July 2023 and in this episode I'm here to bring you the first interview from our fantastic festival of words and ideas, the City of Literature Weekend. City of Literature takes place in May each year and is a National Centre for Writing and Norfolk and Norwich Festival partnership programmed by National Centre for Writing. Today's conversation takes place between writer, poet and educator Raymond Antrobus and NCW Chief Executive Chris Gribble. Raymond spoke to Chris just before he took to the stage to perform at our event celebrating 100 issues of Norwich-based poetry magazine, The Rialto. Raymond was born in London, Hackney, to an English mother and Jamaican father. He's the author of Shapes and Disfigurements, To Sweet and Bitter, The Perseverance and All the Names Given. He has been awarded numerous accolades, including being the first ever poet to be awarded the Rathbone Folio Prize for Best Work of Literature in Any Genre. Raymond speaks to Chris about his development and life as a poet and educator, from finding a community in the London spoken word scene to winning the Folio Prize for The Perseverance, through to his most recent collection, All the Names Given. He discusses the challenges and joys of working in the poetry business, as well as the poetry community. So I'm delighted to hand over to Chris in conversation with Raymond Antrobus. Well, welcome this afternoon, Ray, Raymond Antrobus. You're kind of our guest on the Writing Life podcast in this beautiful day in May. Welcome to Norwich. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. Good to be here. And so we're recording this in Dragon Hall on the afternoon uh, of the first or the middle afternoon of our uh, City of Literature Festival. And this evening's event that we're going to be celebrating is to uh, mark the 100th edition of Rialto Poetry mm. Magazine. And you're going to be reading as part of that. Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about your history with Rialto? So <laughs> this is a little bit of a, almost like a origin story <laughs> In a way, because um, the way that I came across the Rialto um, in 2013, I was doing an MA at Goldsmiths University and my uh, supervisor for my um, dissertation was the poet Jack Underwood. And what I had to do for the last kind of section of this dissertation was... um, write a selection of poems um, which kind of linked to, you know, some of my own projects. Um, My my, uh, my MA wasn't even in literature, it was actually more in um, learning and uh, and teaching and what that can look like in different kinds of settings. But actually it was more of a focus on something, something called emotional literacy, um, and so, yeah, you know, I was almost <laughs> spent three years, um, going into schools, doing case studies, teaching creative writing and poetry and performance and all these kinds of things. And, um, um, something that kind of happened around that time as well as that my dad got really sick and he was dying. So I had all this stuff happening and I started writing these poems and Jack saw them and was like, um, hey, have you ever submitted poems to journals before? And I said, no, why would I do that? That wasn't really part of my vision, I think, as a, as a poet, as a writer. At that point, I was very much in, I was more interested in being heard than I was in being read, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, even though I had 
you know, countless literary uh, influences uh, and inspirations. My, my, my mother is very literary. But, um, yeah, for my own work at that point, I was like, no. You know, I, I was thinking along the lines of almost being listened to the way that you might hear a, a, a dub poet, uh, Linton Kwesi Johnson or Jean Binter Breeze, and uh, they, the kind of poets that my dad used to play me on the on, on his cassette tapes. It's one of them right mm -hmm. here on my arm, the tattoo of a tape on my arm. Um, and so, anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a long way to say, Jack took a selection of my poems, put them in an envelope, wrote, like he did the whole thing, <laughs> and I just watched him. And then he's like, right, we're going to put that, Take sending these to the Rialto, he's sending this to Poetry Review, sending this to Poetry London. And so he, he like held my, held my hand through that process. Uh, and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of forever grateful for him because it wasn't the kind of story of like, oh, they all got sent off and then they got accepted because they did, they mm. all got rejected. But it was um, the rejection actually from the Rialto, which was the most encouraging. Um, and so the second time I decided to submit to the Rialto, probably about a year after that, I managed to get a couple of, couple of poems in. Um, and I just remember feeling just <laughs> kind of oh, such a mix of things, I suppose, like kind of, you know, surprise, um, elation <laughs> in some ways. And then, um, also interested in the, in the meaning of Rialto, the, you know, the bridge. Yeah. So it really was a kind of bridge towards, I suppose, uh, a, sli a slightly more literary um, path, you know, mm. for, for myself, because I think maybe the re one of the reasons I didn't bother submitting or needed that kind of uh, push across the bridge, that particular bridge, um, I just kind of assumed that there wouldn't be space for me in the literary world from what I understood of it and what I saw of it, I think. Mm. Um, I very much came from like a kind of open mic kind of background, but like growing up, my parents would take me to see poets like Adrian Mitchell and um, Roger McGough and Brian Patton, those kind of the Liverpool poets, and um, as well as Benjamin Zephaniah, Limcise, and you know, so. It, poetry and poets they were always there so I, I never felt like it was something I couldn't do mm -hmm. but from what I'd seen of the kind of more literary side of things it felt like I didn't yet have a model or an idea of that being a space I could occupy mm -hmm. so yeah the Rialto was quite literally the beginning of a, of, of, of a journey <laughs> of a step across that bridge so that's yeah. quite a long long no, way to answer that uh, it, yeah. it's, it's wonderful and it opens up lots of kind of questions that I'm definitely going to come back to that so it was 2015 I think you no, were it was in the, 2015 you were in the, it, yeah. the winter Rialto I yeah that's right get yeah. researching it because we have the 100th uh, <laughs> yeah. celebration and yeah. Michael's a, a fantastic figure in kind of our of shared literary heritage in mm. Norfolk as well as the country. Can I ask, I mean, we work with a lot of early career writers here, and one of the big struggles that people face is kind of literally crossing that bridge into calling themselves mm. a writer, mm. or kind of allowing themselves to classify themselves in whatever term as writer. What did kind of, what did publication and acceptance into another part of the literary world do for you as a writer? Well, I think... 
it allowed me to see myself in print. And print has almost a, a scary kind of permanence to it. Because I think at that point, the relationship I had with my work, with my poetry specifically, was that I would learn poems and I would perform them in public. And I had a kind of number in my head that I had to perform a poem in public at least five to ten times before I kind of know what it is and what mm -hmm. it's doing. Um, and before I can kind of really, you know, establish it and feel it. But it, all of this was a very kind of personal, internal kind of, you know, uh, relationship that I was trying to make coherent, you know, for and with myself so that I can connect it and deliver it to an audience. So publishing is a little bit, feels a bit different. It feels a bit scarier, actually, because you're literally saying, here's text and here's a shape mm -hmm. of a text. Mm -hmm. And I am trusting you, reader, to, uh, you know, engage um but also you know i'm not saying i have to be didactic and be like this is what it means but yeah i'm just hoping that when a reader comes to the work that they are this is going to sound quite strange but um i i really hope for generous readers mm. um the 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 interesting thing about poetry in particular uh is its it, it, subjectivity can be can be uh, a, an amazing and a brutal, cruel thing, and I think coming up in the way that just the way that I came to language. So I'm educated in you know I spent five years in a deaf school. Before that, I was in special educational needs units. I've had years and years of different kinds of therapies to help me you know develop language quite. Uh, literally and I, I I think a big part of taking on poetry was realizing that poetry was seen as this kind of um, uh, ultimate yeah. kind of language ultimate kind of um, you know challenge in a way it's like if you can do this we can you know you get an opportunity to to show something of yourself that I started to realize that people didn't um, expect mm. from me. So in a way, it was a way to, yeah, prove people wrong, I suppose, in some ways. Um, but then in another way, that's not the, the entire kind of picture of that, because in another way, I think I really do have uh, a natural um, inclination, passion, instinct, uh, for language and for sound and so I've just kind of tapped into that um, and allowed my passion in a way um, to to guide me I've had to trust that um, and so yeah I mean there's there's so many things at, at play so many threads so many places I can go with that but um, you, have, you have to kind of step back from the control that you have as a performer yeah and ask for a, or a hope for a lot more trust in some ways exactly yeah exactly the page was i guess from from when i first started getting published i realized that the page was scarier than the than the than the voice and the body mm. which was my instrument which mm. was my 
in a way my, my place of safety. But, but then I became interested in challenges. I became interested in the kind of conversation or the kind of, um, I don't know, aesthetic uh, space platform that the that, that, uh, the written poem, the printed poem, the text poem takes up, which is which which isn't uh, a binary actually. I don't see the page and stage as, as like kind of opposites things. So when people talk about like that kind of page stage thing, I'm always like, it's clearly something missing in your kind of literary, uh, I don't know, taste, knowledge, understanding. If you know, because if we're in this place where people are like giving someone like say I don't know Bob Dylan a prize for literature then then that shows that the culture is understanding a, a relationship between mm. say the spoken the sung the said word and and, and literature right mm. um but there's a kind of willfulness there because I find that you know things in in, in the kind of literary space or an academic space I've, I've I realized, as as well coming out of academia, I realized that the way that people would talk about, say, craft, became a kind of code speak for um, a kind of uh, intentional exclusion. Mm. It's a way for often for people to draw a line in the sand and say, this is the language in which uh, the value system. Bad. Right, exactly. <laughs> and we have, you Professional know, amateur. Exactly. High, low. <laughs> All of that. And the thing is, that kind of um, field of uh, tension felt very similar to me being in school and going to these kind of different special educational units and, and, and seeing how people respond to me and, and my peers and how people respond to say when I was learning sign language and that became this thing of like you're not signing correctly and then as I'm talking it's like oh you're not speaking correctly so there's all of these kind of interesting things that I realized oh wow this is language is so powerful and people are so desperate to kind of you know control the power of language um, that you know <laughs> Again, I don't think dedicate choosing to dedicate my life to poetry and literature and language in this way. I don't think it's a an accident. Yeah. You know, it's a way in a way to kind of carry on. Um, yeah. You know, developing my language and, and my sensibilities of speech and the written word and the spoken word and all these things, which I'm still kind of very invigorated by. Yeah. I, I, I wonder sometimes if the desire to control language is more about people's desire to control or anxiety about mm. belonging and not belonging. Completely. And just simply having that in, out, us, them, mm. that kind of feeling that can be... I, I started in the... I suppose I started in the page poetry world. I worked at Carcanet Press back from 1998. <laughs> um, and then I moved into Manchester Poetry Festival where we had slams and a really vibrant kind of spoken word scene in Manchester. Mm. Kind of people like Kai Miller came through that book. Right, point. Yeah. It was early days at Manchester Metropolitan University. Yeah. And Thick Richard and this whole kind of yeah. brilliant sort of panoply of people. And I found it a real struggle. That page stage discussion didn't seem to, it didn't seem to be a very fruitful. And most often it wasn't about 
the poetry at all. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And when I was reading, because you, you briefly mentioned your MA, you did an MA in spoken word education at Goldsmiths, one mm. of the very first people in the world, I think, to go through that programme. Yeah. And you made a comment in the London magazine about how you realised that that London spoken word scene was more of a community than a genre. Yeah. And it, I just thought, ah, oh, that's it. Yeah. That's what you get. Can you t- tell us a little bit about those days in that scene and how it's kind of oriented you in the world? Mm, yeah. Um, I suppose, like... Writing is hard, creating is hard, and it is very easy for someone like me to think and talk myself out of um, writing a poem or pursuing, you know, um, yeah, (laughs) pursuing a a creative life or life in art Um, because everything in the culture, you know, capitalist culture, is a, it goes against that because there's no kind of definite, you know, value. What, £50 to uh, get maybe, maybe if you're lucky, you get £50 to publish one poem. You know, like the, the money is so, <laughs> it's no one's making a living, right, off that. Um, so you have to be motivated by other almost, um, I don't know, instinctive uh <laughs> I'm hesitating on using um, words like madness, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it really was a kind of like almost inarticulate... Other uh, sources of nourishment. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. That I just needed. Yeah. And so what I found in the early years of like open mics and... Because it wasn't slams, it was open mics and then it was slams. And then after that, it was just kind of, um, you know, trying to make uh like a 20 minutes woven set of poetry where everything kind of you know flows like almost like a the way that i i know some people who are who do stand up and the way that they they talk about um weaving together bits towards the show like you know spoken word in in that when i was doing that was a similar thing i was trying to you know, go in for like a cohesive five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes, 20 minutes and then it got a set and then you can like tour with that and say like, you know, put yourself out there. So there were different nights like Hammer and Tongue and a couple of nights that don't exist anymore, a couple of nights that I don't even want to uh, mention. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's, you know, there's a whole circuit and not and, and, and what I realised, what I learned quite quickly when I started the circuit was that it wasn't just UK, it was like Europe. Because yeah. I was also going around Germany and mm-hmm. parts of Italy and Switzerland. And uh, I did a couple of gigs in France. You know, so there, there's there's a whole kind of no, other world almost. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting discovering that because I'd go to these other countries and these other cultures and I would find almost like doppelganger versions of poets that I knew from the <laughs> London scene. I'm like, oh, you're like the French version of this poet I know <laughs> down in, um, I don't know, down in Peckham or something. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. wow. I, th- that was almost a kind of um, sign for me that I was connected, that I was in a, in a, in a network. And, you know, it, f- it fed me, it encouraged me in a way that I think if my, if my um, I don't know, vision was just to, just only to sit up, a desk right here with uh, I've got paper and pen and just write and then just throw it out there and just 
please someone like that one. Please, I don't know if that would have, if I had the stamina for mm -hmm. that. So I think in the early years, I just, yeah, I just got a lot of, I go, I guess, nourishment and encouragement and, and, and support or felt that in a way. Um, because I think everyone or a lot of people seem to understand that you're not in this for the money, yeah. that there really is something else at play with, <laughs> with, with you. And some, some, some of, some of that is quite, you know, eccentric. And, and that's a know, shortcut that. to trust though, isn't it? Exactly. Because yeah. You know that someone's not riding this kind of for a financial game because there is you know <laughs> exactly I think so it's um, again like you know talking to people who are like in the comedy world they, mm. they, they, they say it's a very different it's that kind of yeah. thing so yeah. yeah I forgot what the question was no, sorry no, no you're talking exactly about <laughs> right the question I suppose it was, I was kind of interested in um, kind of what how you found yourself oriented in that world by whom and whether individuals oh. like, kind of really sort of helped you locate yourself i'm particularly interested in notions of mentors and mentoring because mm, okay. there, there's such a real kind of there's been a real resurgence in the last 10 years around kind of the structures of mentoring mm. but it, it did happen quite organically in lots of ways as well and did you benefit from that mentoring in the in that live Oh yeah! Oh yeah! So there, there were some very concrete mentors which I was so privileged to have, which I don't think I would have got to that kind of next stage without. So, um, Malika Booker was my first poetry mentor. Um, she, and how that happened is that at, at an open mic, there was a woman who worked for an organisation called Apples and Snakes. Mm. And she came up to me after I'd read, you know, like 10 minutes of some poems. And she said, you know, you're, you're really interesting. And I'm like, you know, a 19-year-old, you know, just writing these poems and just, just very excited. So she, she recognized someone who was passionate, um, but also recognized someone that needed some guidance. Mm. So um, she said, you know, I've got, I've got a poet I think you should meet up with and speak with. And she's called Malaika and da, da, da. And um, yeah, so what happened was apples and snakes. Um, so, somehow, um, and this is, this, I, I don't even know if this would still happen, but um, they put up some money to pay Malaka Booker to mentor me mm -hmm. for six sessions. It ended up being over six months. And we met, we would meet, at the poetry library in the South Bank in London. And I, I'll never forget this. Malika sat me down at a table and she said, okay, let me see your notebook. And I showed her my notebook, she looked through it. It's like, hmm, okay, cool, okay, cool. Now, before I talk about your writing, let's talk about your reading. Now, what are you reading? And I was kind of like, well, I do a lot more, you know, I was, I was, talking a lot more about, I guess, prose writers at that point. And, and there was some poets I was reading, but I suppose not in a way that I could, that I knew how to talk about them or apply, you know, their work to what I was also interested in aligning myself. So what Malaka made a point of like, okay, well, let's get you reading in a way, like reading like a poet, basically reading like a writer so that your reading can fuel your, your writing. So she sent me to the bookshelf and she said, okay, pull, say, three random books off the shelf. Um, and I, f I forget two of them that I pulled off, but the one that I remember 
Oh no, I'm two two of the books I pulled off. Um, Blizzard of One by Mark Strand, and uh, uh, a Charles Simic book. Um, title escapes me now, but the I opened up the the Mark Strand book, and there's this poem called The Mirror, and it's a poem, a narrative poem very slender shaped poem on the page and it tells the story of a man showing up at a party and he's holding a drink and he's got this line about how the setting sun yellows the drink and he looks you know so there's like you know he's looking at the drink and he's looking at all these reflections in the glass and then he looks up and sees there's a mirror on the ceiling mm. and notices a woman on the other side of the room which he can only see in the mirror and the whole poem is just him noticing this woman on the other side. I'm wondering, what's she doing? You know, that's literally the question of the poem. What is she doing? Mm. Um, you know, is she waiting for someone? And then, and then he imagines a life where it could be him that this person is waiting for. And, you know, it did that Emily Dickinson thing of like it spun my brain because... It was just this, you know, you know, deceptively simple thing mm -hmm. of uh, simple, straight language, but more importantly, image and mm -hmm. idea. There's all kinds of, you know, um, opportunities to, to, to just go off <laughs> on, you know, uh, reflection and, and, and narcissism and you know um and yeah and I remember I, I read that that poem back to Malaika and then she's like great what do you like about it that's all that's all it was doing and she was just asking me to respond and she wanted to see me respond to literature and once she saw me respond she was like you're a poet you're a poet I didn't even you know and she said that before she had, she, she read the work um and so that was interesting. You asked me earlier about, you know, at what time did I call myself a writer or call myself a poet? And I think I, I really um, internalised the idea that I couldn't call myself a poet and, or a writer until someone else did. And so Malika was, yeah. in my memory anyway, the first person to say that. Yeah. You know, another poet saying, you're a poet, recognising themselves in you. Mm -hmm. I think we do uh, quite a bit of work with early career writers and literary translators at National Centre for Writing and mm -hmm. kind of work hard to give people opportunities, introductions, skills, but 80% of the work is giving them a group of people within which they can they are told they are and then they can call themselves writers. Beautiful. It's really powerful. Mm. You've done a lot of learning in lots of different contexts. You know, you talked about being in different schools, special mm. educational needs, mm. deaf school, mainstream school, academia. What is it with mentoring that is, what's the learning moment that's particularly different or powerful, do you think? I think the mentoring, is, well, it's two things. I think it's the kind of... Um, in a weird way, it's almost like a, um, hmm, this, is, this might be a little bit revealing, but like, um, because obviously your mentors are, you know, they're older and there's a kind of um, elder uh, respect, mm -hmm. but also a kind of, you know, family slash like parent kind of thing. <laughs> what I, I realised this 
later on in, in, in my life, actually looking, looking back at this time. But I think there was a part of me that was looking for um, the, the kind of parents that I wish I had. Mm. Mm. And it was quite interesting that I ended up for, for some time being sustained by these mentor figures who kind of were almost stand-ins for, for my parents. Like, uh, it's, it, like it's interesting, like, uh, you know, I, it's quite gendered as well in terms of my, my mentoring. So, you know, and the, the, the women that have been mentored uh, have quite a motherliness to them and to, mm -hmm. their, to their work. I don't know if I want to say their names, but... You know, um, and then, and same with same with the with the with the men, um, and I and I think that it was important for me though to to realize that and recognize that and kind of stay, take a step back mm. and to really um, because they're not my parents, no, no. you know, <laughs> Malika Booker is not my mother or my sister <laughs> or my auntie, you know, uh, and these <laughs> parents are not my dad. So um, when I when I um, kind of figured that out for myself, it, it, it actually helped me, um, it helped me maybe even like folk, be able to focus on the work a bit more mm -hmm. than, you know, my own kind of emotional needs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting because as, as well, like um, um, discovering trying to think how to, how to, how to say this. I've never really articulated this. It's been a feeling for a while, but like um, how, I, how I found in poetry and in literature, yeah, my own kind of way to curate my family, yeah. my friends, my, the, the, the conversations I want to have. Um, your logical versus your biological family. Is exactly, the chosen <laughs> family. Yeah, all of that. Right, I, I relate to that. Uh, that that those ideas, you know, um, so, yeah. So like, it, you know, in a in a strange way, like I kind of, um, I really needed that. Mm -hmm. I really did, and it's just a thing that kind of kept me going. Just it's like you know, just just the element of someone that you respect, someone that's a bit older, looking mm -hmm. at you and saying this is good. Mm. I mean, it was a powerful thing. And I, and I think, um, yeah, you know, at different points that I've, I've had my eye on different people that I'm trying to impress. And usually it's, okay, here's the formalist poet and taking me on as a, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write those sonnets. They're gonna be so good. They're gonna be so good. <laughs> they really like sonnets. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an ambic, beat here in the middle of the game. I'm, I'm you know what? on the here I come <laughs> yeah you know I, I'm going to do four turns in this one's actually going to look and the funny thing is with, I like with most things in life when you when you try and impress someone and you try you know you the, the try hard thing it never it never really works <laughs> Just giving in poems that I was so sure it's like oh, you're going to love me now here you go and then just be like huh <laughs> what happened to the other thing you were writing you know I was like oh uh, uh. <laughs> I think it's fascinating there's a there's, there's something there's kind of some sort of 
isometry with the teacher-pupil relationship on one side, mm. then there's the parent-child, as you've already said, then mm. there's the therapist-patient as yeah. well. There's all of these forces that are unleashed yeah. in mentoring, and some of them are about resistance yeah. and fighting back. Oh, totally, yeah. So it's a, I think it's a fascinating dynamic. There's a lot of... Yeah, no, that's true what you say about resistance, because as well as, like, marking your kind of, you know, your kind of space or territory, it's also marking... Enemies might be a hard word, but you also want, you know, you have an idea of what you're pushing against mm. as well as what you're pushing towards kind of thing. Um, and we need that. So it's, it's interesting. I realize that we need, it's as important to have something to push against mm. as it is to have something to pull towards. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend who's a very successful prose writer and she's incredibly positive and a generous person. And mm. I was talking to her about just this thing once and she mm. sort of turned around and said, but, you know, I do also want to crush the faces of my enemies into the dust. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You can have both. Do you, yeah, <laughs> totally. No, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that I'm asking about these particular moments in your career is because, partly because I, I feel like I've seen, seen you, been witness to your career for quite a long time. You mm. won't know this and don't feel threatened by it. I'm just a poetry reader, honestly. But you were, your, uh, your first full collection was published by Tom Chivers at Penned in the Margins. Right, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been kind of around Tom since the start of that. And I've really been kind of watched him with huge admiration. How was that as an experience and what did that book do for you? Oh, you know, so <laughs> um, the perseverance and the whole experience of writing that book was so damn emotional like, and so private and so, like what I just said about, you know, I had very, a very clear idea about who my enemies were and what I was pushing against and the kind of, you know, allegiances that I was wanting to, to, to signal you know, it was it was meant to be a very much a kind of like I have arrived. I've realized something, and now because I was trying to write that for so long, and so, there was just a, a spark. I wrote it, yeah, and, and the whole time was a quite a quite a blur because I'd written a um, a pamphlet from Too Sweet and Bitter a year before, and just that just came out, and. Um, and I was, actually that that was that felt like a really important book to write, but then it felt important to jump straight into the next thing, and then that, that became the perseverance. Um, I mean, and speak like I have a different kind of perspective of it now, but speaking to it at the time, it was like a I had I had such low uh, well I had no experience of the publishing world really. Mm. It, uh, at that point, the only people who kind of, you know, Too Sweet and Bitter was put out on Outspoken Press and the publisher and the editor was literally a friend of mine. So mm. it was, you know, there was no like... A bit more DIY. Yeah, exactly. And, and the same with, uh, I published two pamphlets, one in 2012 with Bud and I Press and then I self-published something in 2011 called uh, that I used to for, for a very short time I went by a name the name of educated fool <laughs> which was which was a um a reference to a Bob Marley lyric about educated fools and my dad used to used to sing that lyric to, to, to me a lot and so I adapted it but it kind of whatever that's a different story um but that book uh, The Perseverance 
I had no, to be honest, I had no real kind of professional expectation of it. I just had this very urgent energy <laughs> to, <laughs> to like get it, to like write through this and get through this. Um, it, 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 yeah, it was a very cathartic thing actually. And then when it was out in the world, it really, it really did feel like, uh, you know, releasing uh, people, you know, I know it's a cliche, but you're like giving that part of yourself away, you know, you detach from it and like, okay, it's yours, go out. And the way that that book then moved through the world since has been to the, to this day, actually, um, it just, it just keeps giving me back um, messages and mm. people. And just yesterday on um, Instagram, a, uh, I worked in, in 2006, I went to the States, I went to Ohio and I worked with uh, a group of um, deaf and hard of hearing children and coders, so children of deaf adults so yeah, I was what eighteen, um, and just yesterday, one of the kids that I looked after sent me a message on Instagram, and with a picture of them holding the perseverance, and it said, "I don't know if you remember me, but you looked after me for a week, yeah. and I remember you said you wanted to write poetry. I cannot tell you what it means to see you follow through on your dream." Yeah. And it, oh. Yeah, it was that's it's emotional, and the thing is, I've like I've had quite a few things like you know teachers who remembered me have bought the book and and, and reached out, and I've had it's just become this uh, I don't know teleportation device in some ways for me, and just given me so many opportunities. So yeah, to reconnect with uh, a lot of people and 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 speak to and from you know, my, that, my growing up time and, mm. and all the different people and all different kinds of educational settings and, and, and literature settings. And, um, I'm, you know, and so I'm saying all of this before I'm even talking about like what the like prizes and all of that kind of stuff yeah. did. Cause I didn't expect, again, I, half the prizes that I was winning, I hadn't even heard of. <laughs> so it was like, Oh, Oh God, this is happening. This is happening. And, um, and I think you're still the only poetry book to win the overall folio prize. Yeah, so yeah. So that's kind of that. That that was the that was a big one. That was a really, really big one. Um, I've I'd, I'd say that one of the most memorable kind of memories of that whole period. I got I got shortlisted for this thing called the Griffin Prize in Ooh. Canada, and that was at that point. I mean, that is pretty enormous in terms of global poetry prizes. Oh, it's huge. The curators, the prize givers, the judges, the wraparound, the ceremony, the videos. <laughs> it's huge. It's, pre it's pretty much like how, what it must look like when you're, you know, up for a Nobel yeah. or something. It's a huge thing. And so walking into this grand hall, there were, there were, there were literally thousands of people who are in the audience. Mm. Like, and you're at the podium and, and, I, and I just had this kind of moment where it was like, I'm not, I'm, I wasn't even thinking about winning. It was just a kind of thing of being like, look where I am. Look where a book has taken me. Look at the company it's given me. All the other poets on that shortlist were just amazing. Just beautiful people as well as excellent writers and poets and thinkers and intellectuals. You know, and I think the thing that moved me 
maybe the most out of that whole thing was the fact that I didn't know a single person. I didn't, I'd never heard of any of the judges, any of the jury. Someone on the other side of the world, this group of people had read the book mm. completely detached from, you know, who, you know, me, basically. And so there was no kind of, yeah, it was just like, it was, I needed to see that because I think I needed to, 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 to feel that there was real merit in the work, mm. that it wasn't, as, it, you know, it wasn't anything, but it wasn't, yeah. And so it really... Another point of recognition, yeah. another point of authentic sort of approbation. And yeah. Freedom in a way. Yeah. From, from yourself, your own... Anxiety. Well, my, yeah, all of that. And, it, and you know, that experience kind of quelled a bit for me. And that, and, and that you know, prizes do... The, the validation that you can feel with prizes is a very powerful thing. Mm. But I'd say that the validation I felt just being shortlisted for mm. that award in Toronto, in Canada, in this whole other space mm. was really powerful. And I think really gave me more confidence as a writer, as a poet, because I then went, came back, went straight to work on the next book, mm. you know, mm. and f with a feeling of kind of um, invigoration and inspiration and, 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 and excitement. And I, I can, I'm going to carry on. I'm going to write a better book. I'm going to write a, a more slender book that's kind of with, with a wider lens. And I'm going to kind of write... I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna embrace the uncertainty and 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 create a kind of I know poetic mm. <laughs> with that mm. um, and that yeah and that and I'm and I'm proud of that second book as well so it's just it's you know I've finished the third book now and I'm kind of like cool this is I'm sorry I'm using the, the, the J word again but this <laughs> this is this is a journey you know yes. every book is it's almost like a time capsule it's just, it's its own milestone its own energy its own experience you know it reflects and, the entire world from yeah. that point. exactly I mean, it, as a reader there there's a, there's an obvious kind of umbilical connection between kind of the perseverance and all the names given yeah. but kind of the one of the major things that comes off it is just a many fewer inhibitions mm. uh, much more confidence in all the names given mm. can you talk, tell us a little bit about that book and what you, you know, it's yeah, two years, year and a half old now uh, um, yeah, twenty came out in 2021 yeah, yeah and I wrote it in 2020 so books take ages to come yeah. out, don't they? yeah, <laughs> yeah um, so, that, so one of the big differences one of the, I guess, most front-facing differences was um, all the names given in the UK is published by Picador, uh, where my editor was Don Patterson, who know, just who, come out, who just come out <laughs> and seen, you know, seeing, yeah. and um, with his absolute banging he, memoir. <laughs> you know, the thing is, I've been a massive secret fan of Don Patterson for a long time. I don't really, don't can't really recall ever having a conversation where I'm kind of with anyone and being like Don Patterson is the yeah, like you know, but I, you know, um, from when I read his collection Rain, I just was like, this is someone really up to something really interesting. And uh, I, I think I was drawn to how Don writes with such. I think sometimes his his wit and his humor marks a a a vulnerability yeah. with masculinity in particular. 
and especially how he takes on the kind of, you know, I talk about parents. So he, he writes about both being a son and being a father in, in, in ways that I find really endearing, actually. And so anyway, he, when I heard, um, <laughs> when I heard that Don liked the perseverance, I kind of couldn't believe that. Because I also, I think I had ideas about, because of how public, you know, all of the stuff about, uh, you know, certain poets who, who'd come from, you know, my world at that time of like, you know, open mic slams and performance. Um, some of them were published by Picador and Don, you know, and Don got some flack for publishing them and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, all, 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 all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so when, when, when I heard Don was interested in publishing my next book, I just thought, um, you know, okay, he's gonna, he's gonna hate it, <laughs> but this is what it is. And uh, I sent it to him and he, he got back to me and was just, the thing that we connected with, I, the first poem I sent to him um, was a, actually a poem that didn't end up in the book, but it was a poem about um, my grandfather. Um, so one of the things that me and Don connected with is that both of our grandfathers were ministers, were preachers. And um, yeah, we just had this long conversation about what we felt, you know, how that might have kind of influenced us or what that kind of meant, mm. you know, coming from that position. And um, then I was trying to write these poems about that, which I think only one of them ended up kind of in, in, in the book, but the way in which, um, <laughs> I really appreciated Don's honesty as well. You know, I think that finding critical honesty, uh, is, is actually very difficult because mm. people don't want to, you know, upset you. <laughs> people are nice, aren't they? They're so nice. But, uh, and that, that can, that can, you know, that's not really the kind of editor you want. You don't want a nice editor. It's just the same way you don't really want a nice therapist, you know, <laughs> you know, you want someone who knows how to be honest. Yeah. And, um, but you also, land, yeah. land the criticism without kind of forwarding their own agenda. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And there is such thing as loving criticism. Yeah. Right. Um, unfortunately it's really hard to find. Yeah. And, uh, and it takes often a very skilled, experienced person to deliver that. So I think I found that in Don, actually, mm. for this book. I, for example, you know, I know that there were poems in that book that he didn't want in. And there were poems in the book that I didn't want in. Mm. And it became this kind of tussle, actually. And I think the book was better for that. I think it was made a bit more rounded for that. Mm. Um, and... I think I yeah I think I grew uh, as as a as a poet through writing that um, and and to be honest I really wanted to write away from from the perseverance I wanted to get yeah. the I wanted to get a book away from it yeah. so so now I've written the, the the next book which is coming I can really see how all the names given is like a transitional book yeah. into into something else so now Don's left we've got different editors so now. Um, Picador, Colette Bryce, who who's different, yeah, but also but just brilliant, super sharp. Just what an excellent reader, yeah. 
um, a gifted reader. Like just just the way that she can, um, yeah, she sees things. You can't hide from from, from Colette. And again, the, the, that another hallmark of a of an excellent editor. They can tell when you're hiding. Yeah, I think one of the the things that attracts me to Donan's writing, and I don't know him at all, mm. is that he's an autodidact, mm. so he's self-taught, yeah. which brings a vulnerability yeah. to things, which is both really attractive at times and sometimes really sort of quite shocking Spiky, and spiky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, it, it resounds around class and yeah. expectation. I come from a working class background in an ex-mining village in the edge of Newcastle. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, kind of seeing kind of Don's sort of... And I found a way through to university where I stayed for a really long time doing several degrees in a row, <laughs> thinking mm. I was going to be an academic and then realising, uh, no, it really wasn't yeah, my life. Wow. But kind of what I found in Don is this absolute expectation that he should have access to mm. all of that knowledge. Mm. I find that incredibly liberating in, in, in writers. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I really resonate with that as well. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, also someone who had quite a, yeah, unconventional upbringing where money was not a thing. <laughs> um, but in a strange way, kind of, so many things I value about. I guess myself, my life, and the person I am, which kind of is born and bred mm. of that navigation. Mm. Um, yeah, tricky. Do you want to tell us a little bit to round up with about your next book and just what you can and what sure. you're able to, and when it's going to be out? So the next one is going to be out autumn, autumn twenty twenty four. It is a book which is a hybrid book in that it's a mix of poetry and autofiction. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do something which, yeah, like a kind of uh, lean onto a few other modes of writing. Um, and yeah, the kind of, this kind of autofiction thing came out because um, I became a dad. And so my whole writing rhythm had to change, had to shift. And what I would find myself doing was for the first year of, uh, actually through the pregnancy as well, uh, through my wife's pregnancy, like uh, particularly the, the last trimester, we were, you know, we were living in like three different countries, three different parts of the world. So um, New Orleans and then Oklahoma in the States and then finally came back to, to the UK. Um, and while I was kind of moving to around the, the, the cities and those locations, I was snatching the writing time. So the, 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 the two poets I thought a lot about in terms of like a kind of, you know, um, an anchoring of the mode was William Wordsworth, because Wordsworth had such, it seems to me anyway, my reading of him, such precision and vision in his lyric in that there's a constant uh, allusion to nature, obviously, but I am really struck by this idea that he was so grounded and concerned with trees, mm. and how there are all of these, you know, the so-called romantic poets. Each of them have kind of been assigned a tree, and so Wordsworth's tree, which is often he often writes toward, uh, is the yew tree, 
And so I really like that idea of having a, having a, a, a direction and that being as, as specific as a, as a, as a tree. Um, so yeah, Wordsworth there. And then obviously the questioning, the, the, the curiosity of Wordsworth, which is what is our place in this world, mm. in this nature? Are we, can we, should we even be in conversation with nature? Are we meant to just, you know, are, are, is, is it actually just a God that we need to uh, worship, right? And then the other poet that uh, I drew a lot from and grounded the poetics for this book um, is Lucille Clifton. She's a poet uh, from Baltimore in the US, she died in 2010, but her poems are always very slender, short poems because she, she had eight children. So she was writing these poems while she was child rearing and you know, raising mm. her kids. And so the, uh, the practice of raising children fit exactly the mode of poetry that she wrote. And so I just <laughs> fitted towards that as a kind of, yeah, as again, a mode, a tone, a kind of um, way to move through a time which was very delirious, uh, not getting any sleep. Oh tension slender, oh my God. shard-like moments. All of that, yeah. <laughs> So, so it's a book-length sequence yeah, um, in which all of the, not all of them, but a selection of the poems that I wrote through. So particularly over the first six months of my wife's pregnancy and then the first six months of my son's life um, kind of fuse together and make this kind of, again, like delirious, the J word again, journey <laughs> through, again, that uh, particular time. And I think that I realized I had a book when I, when I, when I understood what, what it is that, you know, the time that is being kind of uh, encapsulated yeah. here. So uh, I, I read through it all the way through it just the other day. And there was like, I felt resolved because it was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of out of that now, out mm. of that period um, my son is almost two years old now, so um, yeah, it, it feels like I've got as close as I could yeah. to honour that strange, scary, <laughs> amazing, beautiful, overwhelming time. And what will the collection be called? Oh, I can't oh, say yet. I can't say yet. I can't say yet. They have to. Uh, I signed the thing. They have to. Yeah. Pick a door will announce it well, soon. We'll look forward to kind of reading that when it's out. And the other two books that are coming out in the meanwhile. So, is a, a children's book will be out. It's called Terrible Horses. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a children's picture book. Um, of course, you did Canberra's Ski with Norfolk's yeah. Suffolk Zone, Polly Dunbar. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, the, um, I'm, yeah, a, a very different story, uh, Terrible Horses, but I'm equally as proud of it. Um, and then I have a, a non fiction book coming out in 2025, which, interestingly enough, and we've just been with Don, but it's been edited by the same person who did Don's memoir oh. as well. So that, so been talking quite a bit about yeah. about uh, you know the process of poets writing prose and specifically writing kind of 
experimental memoirs or writing writing prose as poets mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah we had Amy Key this morning oh, yeah, Perry talking about her kind of recent memoir as well so it's a very live yeah, yeah. conversation yeah, yeah it was a great event uh, hopefully we'll record it anyway <laughs> um, so you're going to be reading for us at the Rialto event yes. this evening it's going to be a fantastic celebration yes, of the Rialto wait. magazine um, this podcast by the time it's out maybe a couple of months time but I just want to Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Nice talk. I could have talked to you for a lot longer, <laughs> but uh, it's just a great pleasure to welcome you uh, to Writing Life. An honour, an honour to be here. I just want to say that tonight, right, what I'm going to do is, I'll, 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 this is a loose idea, but I'm reading poems that aren't published, but I'm thinking of it as like, these are poems that I'm kind of proposing okay. for publication. To read. Like, I put these poems in an envelope. You're auditioning. <laughs> I'm auditioning them. <laughs> If if uh, the editors of Rialto are interested, these aren't uh, these aren't published yet. So we can just kind of tap them on the shoulder as we go around this evening and let them know that there's an opportunity for them to have a conversation. There you go. Brilliant. Perfect. <laughs> like that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. A big thank you to Chris and Raymond for their time, and make sure to visit RaymondAntrobus.com to check out more of Raymond's work. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram, and we're over on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to the website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, to find out more about what we do and to sign up to our weekly newsletter. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe to the podcast to hear lots more episodes with amazing writers and translators. And do leave us a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and I'll catch you on the next episode.